My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. within haunts and hollers of Appalachia, a shadowy entrance overgrown and strangled shut by roots and vines. A buried cache of antiquated treasure peeks out of the shadows, forgotten by the descendants of those who failed to retrieve their hoard. With legends of mothmen overhead, dogmen or Bigfoot in the distance, and goblins, elves, and little people sneaking about, the tale you're about to hear may appear at first as a fairy tale. Guess again. Petroglyphs of unknown origin may reveal here a map to find the treasure or even evidence that this strange Appalachia is cursed, enchanted, or charmed. And today's trio of guests has certainly bewitched themselves into the narrative as the main characters in this unfolding tale of Southern charms and treasures. Appalachian Intelligence joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Justin, Lance, and Ryan of Appalachian Intelligence. This rock turns out to be absolutely nothing at all. It's still opened up this massive, awesome. yeah, still awesome, but it's, it's opened up this massive quest that we're on now with this John Swift silver mine and the lost caches, possibly, of silver that goes along there. But Lance does a way better job of this because this all started with Lance. So, Take it away, buddy. <laughs> to make a really, really long story not as long, um, essentially what happened is that his father was trying to buy some land on the Treasure Coast in Florida as a retirement place. Um, and had been in contact with the gentleman down there who had the land and was going to sell it to him. This Mr. Anderson, who is the gentleman who has the land, who lived in Florida on the Treasure Coast, um, he described him to me as just a centric, uh, high energy, just a mile a minute, mouth moving all the time, brain going everywhere, just a really high energy guy that just talk, talk, talk really fast and kind of hard to keep up with at times just because of how fast his brain works and how, how quick his mouth went. 
In the process of them negotiating to get this land sold, um, it comes to find out that this Mr. Anderson actually sold the land to somebody else, okay? And kind of went back on a deal that they had made and felt really bad about it. So as, I guess, as a penance um, for, for kind of coming back on the deal, gives him this information about this John Swift silver mine and tells him that he knows the location of the John Swift silver mine. It's amazing to think that there could be all of these caches in the surrounding area. Maybe there you know, all these legends and, and everybody that you talk to in central Appalachia believes that the John Swift silver mine is in their hometown. It's, it's right here. But I will say, and I will confidently say, that I don't think there's anybody out there that has as much information as we do. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And here on the show with me for the first time making their grand debut are the boys from Appalachian Intelligence. That's Justin, Lance, and Ryan. And it's a pleasure to meet you three. For the audience who might not be familiar with your previous interview on the Confessionals or your awesome podcast titled Appalachian Intelligence. Can you please introduce yourselves quickly so people can get familiar and then tell us a little bit about how your show got kicked off? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll go first. I'm Justin. Um, fellas, go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm Ryan. And I'm Lent. And that's the three Appalachian Amigos right there. Um, now, just to tell you a little bit about the show and how it got started and, and kind of what we do um me and ryan we work together we've worked together for the better part of about a year and a half and um you know we work in a it's a a a woodworking type of setting but it's like it's more like a factory setting so we have you know machinery going really loud uh all the time so throughout the day you know we're wearing earbuds all day long to keep the noise out and uh we just we we intake all the podcast content that that we can get um and you know we both really enjoyed podcasts and we would talk about a lot of the things that that we were hearing and and talk about a lot of topics um you know just amongst ourselves you know everything from science to physics to religion to the paranormal and all the weird and and you know headlines and uh, culture and you know whatever there is out there to talk about we were talking about it and the conversations were were really interest interesting and intriguing and um you know we would go really really deep in certain conversations so finally we were like man we're having a blast doing this while we're at work let's just sit down and record this stuff man and just and see where it goes um lance you know i've known lance i mean we grew up together i've known lance for 20 plus years uh we've been best friends for the majority of that, you know, you, you get old and adulthood comes along and, and work and kids and you kind of drift apart. Um, but this podcast, you know, us starting it back up, Lance reached out fairly, fairly early on and was like, Hey boys, you know, I, I love what you guys are doing. I'd love to come on and, and talk if, if y'all would give me the opportunity. So, you know, us being boys, our whole lives, I was like, yeah, come on, man. So Lance come on, done a couple episodes with us, and the dynamic was just so it, it, it was just there. You know, I'm uh whatever you give me, I'm a believer. I believe it all. I believe in the possibilities of anything you want to put out there. 
Ryan, you know, he's a little more skeptical when it comes to certain things. It's he's a little more logical and reasonable. I just and like one- using common sense, Mark. That's just you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> okay. It's, I, I, I like to describe myself as a, as an open mind and a guarded heart. In case this shit turns out real, I don't want like Beelzebub infesting me or something. So <laughs> I hear that. Yeah, no. Definitely. And Mark, I'm I'm kind of what you would call the irrationally rational third wheel. Okay, I'm just kind of right down the middle of the lane. Some of it I believe, some of it I don't. And I try to bring a little more middle road clarity to some of the crazy that happens on Appalachian intelligence. Yeah, well, I can relate to that, Lance, and I certainly can relate to you guys listening to podcasts at work and feeling like you needed to throw your hat in the ring. That was definitely my experience, and synchronicity just kind of made it happen in a way that I could not have expected, but here we are all podcasting, and yeah, it's an awesome opportunity to bridge the gap between North and South Appalachia. I've hiked the Appalachia up here in Connecticut, uh, just a small stretch, the the few miles it happens to go through Connecticut, but uh, before we go far into what I have to say, I want the listeners to understand where this sort of mystery that you guys are kind of finding yourselves in the center of, when did this start to dawn on you? Because the podcast, this was first, right? The, the mystery kind of came after the podcast. So what what got you guys out there in the woods and to, to see this thing? Was it a tip that somebody sent you? Was it just you were hiking in that area one day? I mean, how did this occur initially? Uh, well, we actually, you know, we, the things that we talk about, you know, we, we try to make it an open platform, bring on guests, other content creators, and just talk about as much weird stuff as possible. Um, you know, the weirder, the better. So we were looking into a lot of these different things and, and hearing so many stories and doing our own research into a bunch of different topics. And, and, you know, we like to focus on Appalachia. You know, we talk about a lot of different places around the world, but we like to focus on Appalachia because one, that's where we live and where we're from. And two, there's plenty of weird right here. You don't have to go anywhere else. And three, Mark, it's pretty much all we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're just real folks. Real folks. Yeah. And as far as where we're just in the woods, well, yes, because we live there. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> where we live. Through the woods to get into the yeah. woods to meet you yeah. But no, we were uh, I w- we were actually looking at doing like a little YouTube mini documentary, something along those lines of the local river that runs through our town. Uh, it runs really close, or it runs through the Brakes Interstate Park. Uh, it runs really close to Hellier, Kentucky. I know everybody knows the name Hellier. Um, it's literally right across the state line. You know, probably forty minutes away from us driving. Uh, and 40 minutes on these back roads and hollers don't mean it's very far away. <laughs> so we were talking about about doing that, and I ran into a friend of mine and a, and a big listener, fan of the show, and we were just talking the show. We were talking this mini doc that we, I was thinking about doing and or we were thinking about doing, and he said, Justin, have you ever seen those rock carvings that are on that cliff above town? And I was like, "Um, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. He was like, here, dude, I got some pictures. Let me let me show you. So he pulls up these pictures and I'm just flabbergasted right off the bat. I mean, I had no idea that this was here this close. So 
you know, I'd start talking to these boys and I'm like, look, we've got to get up there and, and check this out. Like, this is, this is huge. So we start talking about it. You know, we're super busy guys. We all work full-time jobs. We all have big families trying to get together and do anything is, is almost impossible. So we held on to this for probably a month. And finally a Sunday rolls around. It's pouring the rain that day. And, uh, we were just like, you know what? Look, let's let's go. I don't care what the weather's like. I don't care. I've got directions on my phone that could should get us close enough. Let's just go check it out. So, yeah, man, we got some directions from this dude, and we just headed up that way, hiked into this place, and uh, we came upon it, and it was like the the skies opened up and, and the angels were singing. And it rained <laughs> harder. Yeah, like in, Justin said, we had directions, and we did, but we had like redneck directions. Like they were like, "Look here for this gate that might be open. If it's not. Look down to the right. That might be a fork tree that can possibly be there. And then there might be a cobweb stuck in it. And head over the cliff about three or four paces. And it's not. It really wasn't directions. It was a general idea of where we thought we would be. Um, and I was the one that was almost totally against going, simply because I just didn't want to. I don't know why. I don't know. I didn't, didn't think anything about it. Like, well, if I'm freaking Hayside, like, there's nothing here. Like, there's no major thing here that's ever going to happen. I don't really want to go. But as Justin has for 25 years, he eventually peer pressured me and talked me into going. Um, and once we eventually kind of stumbled upon this thing, uh, none of us were really, I don't think, quite, I don't know, I don't know, a good way to describe it. None of us were expecting what we found. And like once we walked up on it, we were all kind of like, holy cow, like this is, we should have come here a lot, much, much sooner to see this, uh, this rock. Cause it's, it's pretty impressive really that it's there. Wow. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to provide the photo for folks. I've seen it. I think if I'm correct, it was the one that Tony used as the, the cover art. So I'll probably do the same just so audio listeners can immediately know what we're talking about, but for people who haven't seen it for whatever reason, can we describe what it looks like roughly? I heard you guys mention that it could possibly be a map, which I find really uh, exciting if that's the case. Uh, and to where and to what you might find if you follow that map is even more interesting, I'm sure. But what, what did you immediately think when you saw the petroglyph? First impressions for me when I walked up on it, and just took a, the first glance and took the whole thing in. This thing's probably what, fellas, two feet long, two and a half feet long. Yeah. Uh, foot and a half wide. Um, just walking up on it at first glance, um, I looked at Justin. I was like, it looks like the profile of the Golden Gate Bridge. So if you think of the Golden Gate Bridge and you're standing there by the bay looking at it, just the way the columns are, the way the wires are on there, it looks like the profile of that bridge to me. Um, like, with, in, like in 2D. In 2D with like crop circles on the outer edges of it is, is I guess of a way maybe to kind of describe it um, with what we think are two people uh, carved on either end of this, what you would consider what I consider to what looked like a bridge. That was that's the way I try to describe it to people who haven't seen the pictures yet. Yeah, it's the way that Lance is describing it right there is almost perfect because I think, you know, as soon as he said that, you know, 
the three of us and also mine and Ryan's sons were there with us, you know, we all kind of glanced down. I was like, yeah, you know, that, that could definitely be that. Uh, but it's just, yeah, it is, man. It's just so strange because you have these, these big cavernous looking circles surrounding this thing. And then you just have these super intricate lines that they're going in these really sharp edges and these fine points. And, you know, like Lance said, not to mention the, the two humanoid looking carvings on either end of the thing. And in the pictures that we provided on there, you can't really see those extremely well. We have a couple where they come up a little uh, better and I'll, I'll send those to you as well. So you can put those out there if you want. Uh, but for anybody that hasn't seen the, um, this, the pictures of this rock, you can check them out on our Instagram, uh, on the confessionals, Instagram, they're there. Um, it's, it, but yeah, man, it was just, it was wild. Like, you know, it's one of those things like we were talking to each other. What could this be? What could this mean? You know, what could this represent or symbolize, you know, and obviously you're thinking, you know, number one question there, who put this here? Like who, what, what culture, how old is this? And why, you know, and yeah. And why? You know, and and we just keep we're more lost now than ever because <laughs> all these things keep popping up, man. Like just as of recent, this you know, to me, this could be from the Shawnee, and we'll explain why. But it's crazy. Well, it, you look you look at it, and like me and Ryan were looking at Shawnee artwork today. And you could see some similarities between, you know, some of the circular patterns on this rock and some of the artwork the Shawnee would put out there. But also you look at, you know, like ancient Welsh and Scottish rock carvings and the way that they carved everything out of around the symbol or picture or whatever they were trying to represent to kind of give it almost that three dimensional look to it that style is also kind of there um i actually just got off the phone literally 20 minutes before i jumped on on here with eric the host of the uncomfortable podcast and his son is a geologist so he was like you know man uh my son's a geologist if you want to send me those pictures i'll shoot them to to him and see what he has to say about it so, you know, his son's taking a look at it, saying that, you know, telling all the different things about the rock and, you know, how it's been there for who knows how long, you know, hundreds, thousands, however many years because of the erosion around the thing and, you know, how it's not been moved from anywhere um, and how as far as the, the engravings on it, you know, he's 99% sure that they are not natural. Now, as far as from a culture or people group, you know, he couldn't really give much information on that. But Eric said, in his opinion, it looks like some kind of really old Spanish with their artwork and the way that they did things. So obviously you put this out there and hundreds, possibly thousands of people are looking at it. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody thinks, oh, well, it looks like this. It could be this. 
Unless Aiden. you go to the archaeology page on Reddit, because those pretentious bastards were all, oh, this is completely natural. Was there a building on top? I'm like, dude, it is a cliff face in the freaking woods in the Appalachian Mountains. There was no building here, okay? Mm. It's not from the foundation of a building. Well, I am I am glad you said that, because now I don't have to. And yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> the official mainstream people who claim to be experts usually just help obscure the the matter more than they do elaborate on it and yeah if i could give my two cents and not that i claim to know what this is but maybe we can all sort of connect some dots and this may help you guys uh, along the way in the future have you ever looked into the susquehannock tribe at all do you know about them does that ring any bells i've heard of them okay yeah I've heard of them, but I haven't really looked into them. Well, when you said Welsh, and uh, it made me think of them because their tribe has a language that's very similar to Gaelic, right? And there have been a couple of researchers who have made this connection, not just with the Susquehannock, but with other tribes as well. The more famous is the Mandeans, who were said to actually have been Welsh immigrants from more recently who settled in the, in the Mississippi River Valley area. But... There's plenty of evidence to show that the Native Americans in the Northeast, New England, Maine, Canada, had been trading with people from Scandinavia, right? This is pretty well established by now, but it's interesting to think about what European cultures might have been here prior to Columbus. And, you know, the Spanish themselves have a tricky history with that too. Some people think that maybe they had prior knowledge that was given to them about the new world that they gathered from some source. But I have to ask you another question. When it comes to the the stone itself, the surrounding area, were there any stone structures that stood out, any other stones in the area that you noticed? Because what I found is usually these things tend to be in a sort of site, you know, with multiple stones in an arrangement with one another. This Not in the direct area. No, this stone is, you can see where there's been a breakaway, uh, you know, due to probably weathering and erosion and all this different stuff. And what we're talking about, this thing is, is literally on top of a, a cliff. Like if you take a step forward, you're falling probably 70 feet <laughs> to your death. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's right on top. Um, you can see where there have been breakaways in between the stone and some of these carvings will go on to other stones surrounding this. But as far as, as anything else that you could look and say, okay, well this, this was man-made, this is some kind of structure or this is some kind of other carving. There's nothing else there. Now there is uh, probably if you step off to the left, you know, 50 to a hundred feet, something like that. There's what we've talked about, and, and it looks like it would be like a peak point where someone could stand there and you can see you can see 70 percent of, of the town now. So it's right along the river. So whatever settlement would have been there, I'm sure would have also been right along the river. So it's almost like this peak point to where you could see everything that's going on, you know, below you, um, everything behind you. Or nobody's coming, you know, in from behind you because you're on top of a freaking mountain. Um, 
but you know, it's one of those things like, like Tony brought up on the confessionals, you know, what if this thing goes into the mountainside? You know, what if this thing is covered by hundreds or thousands of years of, of dirt and, and soil and, you know, all these different vegetation, uh, you know, we don't know, you know, it's one of those things like this could be just a, a tip of a cornerstone sticking out from, from beneath the ground. There could be an entire complex system of whatever else there. And, you know, we wouldn't know it unless we really started digging and, and excavating on the, on the property. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's definitely something that's been overlooked, right? And, and this idea that things are lying beneath the surface, you know, you, you joked at the beginning that, you know, not many people seem to be interested in this kind of thing, even though it's right in their own backyard. And you guys even didn't expect to have such amazing things in your backyard. And I think that's part of the lost mythos of this country, you know, the Native American lore, the colonial lore, and all the other amazing stories that they haven't been completely lost. There's just so many distractions that people don't, you know, pay attention to them anymore. And I know at some point we're going to get into the whole treasure hunting saga <laughs> aspect of this. And I think that's really cool. But before we do, I want to show you guys the petroglyph that's pretty interesting. That's uh, in Massachusetts. And it's since been taken out of its original resting place and put inside of a museum. But Maybe this, along with some other petroglyphs, could help inform what you guys are looking at down there. Let me share my screen for you. So let me know when you can see that. Oh, yeah. All right. So you guys can see the Dighton Rock. Now, what's really fascinating about this rock is that if you look under his sort of right elbow there sort of draw a line from his elbow you see this sort of like head of a figure mm -hmm. and it's kind of triangle body with like almost like an hourglass shape down towards the bottom well this is like a chalk outline of the petroglyphs that's what they how they got this photo but if you look at a different recreation that i have in a book on my shelf there's like a sword in this guy's hand, what we would typically think of as like a European style sword, something that the Native Americans were told wouldn't have had unless maybe they traded for it with some group from Europe where they did have the ability to, you know, create things out of metal. So that's one interesting thing to note with this weird petroglyph that you know, it's quite big compared. I mean, look at this guy. He's a normal size dude and the rock is four times his size and the petroglyph expanses across the whole face of the rock here this was in a swamp in dighton massachusetts it's called the dighton rock now another one that i don't know if i'll be able to find a picture of but we could look it up is the such Su susquehanna petroglyphs and that tribe i mentioned before the susquehannocks they were named uh, the river was named for them. Uh, they lived in this region along the Susquehanna River, which goes all the way up to Cooperstown, New York, and down to 
uh, the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. So you have these Susquehanna petroglyphs all across this enormous rock called Big Indian Rock. And I don't know if this page has a photo of it, but basically you guys are starting to get my point here is that, you know, there are many of these petroglyphs all over the place that are unaccounted for, you know, like here, here's a, a guy standing on the rock with some petroglyphs and this might, might be a different place altogether actually, but either way, you know, just illustrating my point here that there are tons of petroglyphs that for the most part, you know, haven't really been acknowledged by mainstream science. Maybe it's because you know, politics, they don't want the Native Americans to have any credit for, you know, being here. And <laughs> we're yeah. still pretending they weren't here. Yeah. So, or maybe it's <laughs> to hide these larger secrets about, you know, what their mounds are really about or what they're, you know, hiding in caves like treasure. Now, on the point of mounds, we don't really have a lot of mounds in the Northeast because of the soil. So they have these stone structures and, um, my girlfriend and I, while driving around, we saw a standing stone that was like seven feet tall off the side of the road. So I pulled over and I took a look at it and it was really fascinating, this standing stone, but even more fascinating was the uh, giant, what they call by archaeological standards, glacial erratic, this giant glacial erratic that, I mean, it's shaped like a bird, you know, and, and I'll show you guys a picture once I get my screen share going again here. But I think, you know, with this in mind, possibly uh, this could be something that you guys keep in mind and have in your tool book when you're using, you know, you're looking around out there in this more southern part of the Appalachia. I don't I don't think it would have been a stretch to imagine that what the Native Americans were doing with the ceremonial stone structures here in the Northeast is all that different from what they're doing down there. So, uh, yeah, let me just uh, get this going for you guys and you can see what I'm talking about. Yeah, for sure. Gosh, this is this is awesome. I I love looking at all these petroglyphs and these rock carvings. Also, boys, next time we hit up there, we got to take some chocolate. It was, I didn't even think about that. Mm. I didn't either. Yeah. That won't even damage it, would it? Yeah. That would be way better pictures. A lot, yeah, it's true. Yeah, well, I imagine like, you could probably wash the chalk off and nobody would notice. Yeah. yeah well, I'm another sure the thing. would take care of that eventually. Yeah. yeah a thing that, that something that Eric mentioned was there's these apps out there that you can download and it does like this 3d imaging and rotating and all this different stuff that may be a, maybe a good thing to, to test out and try and see what we can find on, on that. Mm. Like LIDAR, you, are you talking about LIDAR? Well, it's not so much uh LIDAR even it's uh, the way that he talked about it is there's apps even for your phone that will scan you know, these, they do it a lot with like facial recognition and all of that different stuff. Um, but it will scan, you know, certain objects as well. And you can, it'll kind of 3d image it to where you can manipulate it on your screen and move it around and kind of just look at it from different angles. 
um, to maybe get a clearer, a clearer picture, you know, beneath the moss and the grime and the, you know, all of that. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's kind of why I want to get out at this time of year when there's no snow, you know, leaf cover and, and, you know, it hasn't snowed yet. So it's probably easy to, to see, uh, these stone structures, but can you guys see this? Yeah. All right. Yeah, we can. So this is what caught my eye initially, this stone structure. And you can maybe see in this smaller picture here, there's my girlfriend, Tara, and she's like probably what, five, five. So it's pretty big compared to her. Um, she's only standing about a foot behind it. So, um, yeah, we got this big standing stone and then right behind it is this, what I'm calling like a goose or a swan. And here I am standing next to it. I'm almost uh, seven feet tall. So I'm kind of <laughs> big. I don't know, odd to look at me next to it. I probably make it look kind of small, but, uh, but yeah, this is quite a large boulder and it's situated on top of a, a much larger stone sort of on the side of the hill. And sure enough, the, that arm there, if you want to call it like a stone arm or the neck of the goose is facing uh, due west, right towards where the sun sets. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of odd to find stuff like this, but then we looked at the map and found out that it's right on this Hammonasset line that we found a book all about. This guy, Glenn Kreisberg, has written a book that you guys might be interested in called uh, Spirit in Stone, and he talks about this line along with many other things in his book. And on this line that goes all the way from the tip of Long Island through Connecticut up to the Great Lakes in Canada, you have all of these stone cairns and stone structures like this one that we found uh, just driving a, on a pretty well-treaded route. And then here's another forest with numerous signs of, uh, you know, Things going on, you know, I don't want to say that the Native Americans are responsible for all of this because there were quarries in the area, but I doubt that the quarry would have left this stone like this with a tree growing out of it, uh, you know, <laughs> placing stones on top of each other like that, or even these two stones, which that you can't really tell from the picture, they're massive and they're not connected to each other. They weren't once a part of each other. They're just sort of two massive stones that are on top of each other. Here's another angle of that same stone on top of a larger stone. And and if you look at it from the side, kind of a zoomed out perspective, you could maybe infer the shape of some sort of animal, kind of like what Tony was showing you guys about what he found in, in Pennsylvania, also on the Appalachian Mountains or near the Appalachian Mountains. So, yeah, it's just odd to find all of these things that you think would have an explanation and the only explanation we're given from archaeologists for all of these things is that oh no it the, the glaciers left them like this it was just the glaciers the glaciers melted and all these stones ended up in weird positions you know and i just think that's bs especially when you look at all the triangular shapes like this triangle cut i found uh this triangle pyramidal boulder you often find uh the granite with like quartz inside of it or other crystals that seems to be important. And I've also found like what looks like faces in the stone, you know, like this sort of face here. Um, here's another face. This one's a little more obvious with the 
the line drawing kind of helps you see it, but the, uh, yeah, the faces in stone are, are kind of, um, significant spiritually. What the native Americans would call some of these stones were like, basically the word meant spirit stone, right? Hence the title of that book. And here's a stone that we found that's shaped kind of like a face. I mean, you tell me what you think. Yeah, I can see the eyes. Right? So, you know, these these stones were, uh, we found in like a sort of significant area near water. And when you start to pick up on these clues of like what areas tend to have these things and what to look for, uh, you often find like many more things like this. Again, another stone face with what looks like a, an eye burnt into it or maybe carved with like some sort of charcoal or something. Um, that looks really serpentine. Right. So like, I'm really glad now, guys, when I see I climbed down the face of where that rock is and I took a few pictures. Guys, remember the little thing I told you looked like it was holding a uh, like some sort of spear or rod and it has a face like it's very clear mm-hmm. uh i wish i could send this to you right now mark i don't know how but that's all right i'm gonna edit this video uh, a bit so even if you want to just send it to me and post like the other video uh picture you're gonna send and i'll just like kind of paste them on the screen for people to see okay. if you yeah, want to just describe it yeah just describe it for me it's just kind of it's it's like a little short stout figure and you can see the eyes, like the, they're kind of looking down and they're just kind of squinted, the nose, and jutting out from the chest area looks like it would be holding something out like it like it was defending that rock. <laughs> wow. Like a, like a, a Pukwaji. Have you guys ever heard of the Pukwaji? Yes. yes. Yes, exactly like that. We love the Pukwaji. <laughs> <laughs> They got those up here. Uh, there's some stories that the Mohegan tribe have. Uh, they're kind of famous for their casino, but they have uh, a very interesting stone site near their uh, territory, and it's called Gunjiwamp. You guys could look this up uh, at home, and you three can look it up. It's, it's G-U-N-G-Y-W-M-A-M-P, and uh, one of the theories about this place is that it was used by some sort of Gaelic Celtic type group because they have these, um, dull, what are they called? The, um, dolmens that they're like, you know, two stones with one much larger stone on top of it. And these aren't taller than a human. Like they're less than six feet tall. They're not extremely big, but at first, they're like, oh, these are just colonial root cellars, and they're, they're not made by the Native Americans. Uh, but then Tara and I found this book and other books by a guy named James Gage and Mary Gage. Uh, I think they're a couple. And they've basically proved that all of these stone sites and structures, stone walls and whatnot, were for the most part, originally built by the Native Americans, and then some of them were built by farmers. So 
Yeah, I mean, hopefully that hmm. helps you guys on your quest, you know, pick up some clues. Whenever you see a stone wall, you know, think twice about where it leads to, especially when it's not near a farm, you know, because that's an indication that it's much older. Um, and, yeah, I think these white stones, too, the uh, quartz stones, have something to do with it. You mentioned that this uh, petroglyph is at a very high point, like a viewpoint, that's a theme as well. You you often find these massive like boulders at the top of a of a mountain, and some of them happen to be these all white quartz. And some people say that those are called like beacon stones, where on a sunny day you could see it from far away, kind of like gleaming. And maybe if you wanted to send somebody a signal, you'd light a fire near it and the smoke would change the way it looked, right? Because a, a daytime fire signal isn't going to work as effectively as a nighttime one. But if you have this, you know, shiny stone that's normally reflecting uh, a shimmer and then you see smoke in front of it, that's possibly a, a daytime warning. And yeah, it's it's fascinating to to think about the spiritual context of these things. You know, often in you know European folklore, there's the word about treasure being associated with spiritual beings. I mean, I'm using the word spiritual, but we can insert the word energy. You know, metaphysical beings, uh, otherworldly beings, uh, leprechauns, dragons. You know, all these different <laughs> things. So. On that note, have you guys got the sense? I mean, you're on the Confessionals podcast. I was expecting a Sasquatch to throw a rock at you when I was listening. Did you have any odd experiences uh, with the with the petroglyph, like anything that made the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Well, Pet the petroglyph itself gave me chills when we first seen it, but and then the comment from that dude off of Reddit. That's what I was just getting ready to get into. You know, it was one of those things, Mark, when we got there, you know, I've described it before as for me, it felt almost like you hear somebody describe, describing a, a shamanic experience. Now, I know these boys, it was a little different, um, but for me, it was like just for a few moments, I could feel every raindrop hitting my skin. You know, I just felt this sense that my spotty senses were tingling. I mean, it was just, it felt important you know and i don't know i can't tell you whether it was a a a a good energy or a bad energy i just know that there was an energy there um and you know and sending these pictures out and talking to, to different people out there in the field and and you know people that are into the weird like we are uh you know i sent it out to to steve who from hall sky podcast who, you know, he has a lot of, of time spent in research and, and on the native tribes, you know, and just native culture in general. So I sent them to him and I was like, dude, do you have any idea? You know, have you ever seen anything like this? So he put them on a couple of geology forums. And uh, one of the comments that came ac across one of these geology forums was, this is where the old gods meet. And man, when we got that comment, it was just like, whoa, because I mean, you know, if you think about it, that's what the natives did. You know, that's where they would go communicate with their gods or, you know, their ancestors. They would go on top of these mountains, you know, these high places and they would have these ritualistic ceremonies and all these these places you know, that they would go to and 
that's where they communicated with with the entities, whoever they were trying to communicate with. Right. So, you know, how did they do that? Did they do it through uh, ritualistic purposes? You know, maybe did they, you know, we don't, we don't know for sure. You know, a bunch of different tribes and, and different cultures did things differently, but now a lot of them were similar. You know, we do know that there were sacrifices that were done. We do right. know that, you know, oh, there yeah. was bloodletting. That well, I'll tell you what. Let me tell you this. I was Tara and I were on a hike. Only the next town over, we find all these stone structures, and we go and look in one of these old, you know, colonial record books about the you know early encounters with the Native Americans, and the very tribe that was in that spot was sacrificing a child when they were encountered uh, by this this group. And, you know, a lot of times they would sort of exaggerate the savagery of the Native Americans, but still there's a, there's a truth in it, and, and it's, it's not just the Native Americans who took part in this. But you shouted out Kyle and uh, Steve. I want to give them a shout-out over at Hollow Sky. They've been on the show before. And Penny Royal was kind of ringing in my ears when you said old ones. Uh, Nathan Isaac's oh my gosh, been on the dude. show. That's he, that's so crazy. It's so crazy. I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't <laughs> want to cut you off. I don't want to cut you off right there. But I listened to <laughs> so nuts. I listened to two My Family Thinks I'm Crazy episodes today while oh. I was at work. Uh, yeah. Interview with Stephen Kyle and the interview with Nathan Isaacs from Penny Royal. <laughs> and I'll tell you, which is a crazy synchronicity, crazy. But just to give a little shout out to Nathan Isaacs, too. Um, you know, I haven't spoken with the guy. I plan on doing that one day. But listening to Penny Royal and what he did there and the things, the connections that he made and just this sense of look into what's in your own backyard, you know, find your story, you know, be the independent researcher and journalist in your own backyard, because I'm sure even though it may seem mundane, even though everybody may be walking around like NPCs and not care about this super awesome rock carving right in your hometown, go figure it out, go find it. Right. So, what he did there for us, and it was almost like, you know, it was unintentional. Like, yeah, we were looking at this mini doc and we were like, let's let's show the importance of where we're from. Let's show the weird. Let's show, you know, actual historical things that happen that can relate to all these different things. But then when we started doing that, dude, it was just like doors were being opened that we had no idea. It's like we were being led to this next piece of information and then this next piece. And the, the deeper we dive and the more we dig, the more that opens up. Mm. But it, it with him weirder too. Yeah, dude. With well, him, you got, you got it uh, concentrated by the power of three here with the three of you. Yeah, for sure. I can imagine Holy it crap. sped up quite a bit. <laughs> I've never even thought about that part of it. I've never even thought about that. As much as you look at the number three, Justin, I don't know. You Actually, I've thought about that, Justin, and just didn't put that in your brain because I didn't. We didn't need to jump down that rabbit hole again. <laughs> well, we're in it now. We're in it now. So you all might as well get ready. But anyway, just one more thing about Nathan Isaacs and Penny Royal before we move on. Sorry, I didn't mean to get into this little tangent. You just no, you fine. mentioned those two guys or those three guys. You know, right? That just blew my mind. But. He said something really early on in, in the first two or three episodes of Penny Royal. 
Oh, and also, you know, the places that he's talking about, especially with Dan Dutton and, you know, doing this, this, uh, well, the, the secret Commonwealth, this, this play that he's going to put on, they talked about doing in the breaks, interstate park. That's in our hometown. This tribute to Pan. It's in our hometown. It's breaks no, interstate park. Ten or fifteen yeah. minutes from this rock. So you guys yeah. heard that and were like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it was like one of those things. Okay, if this dude, if they're coming here to investigate, why the why are we not investigating? We're we're here, right? Like, yeah. if they're coming here to do weird stuff, why aren't we here looking into it anyway? Well, and and that's yeah. I'm so glad that we're kind of taking a tangent into this because that's and I hope to have you three on this show. Uh, my girlfriend and I, along with two friends, uh, Chad from uh, Detroit, Michigan, and Roman, who lives over in California, he hosts a podcast called Rising from the Ashes. We started a show called Esoteric America, and for that purpose, to have folks like yourself on who are researching that you know, whatever their local area is. And there's so much to get into that, you know, one episode just isn't enough, but uh, we like to have people on to talk about, you know, whatever it is they got going on. And we've covered a bunch of places so far. And when you said old ones, another thing that kind of ticked a a button for me is HP Lovecraft, right? He famously wrote about the old ones and he's from this area that I live in and is sort of east of me. But one of his stories is about uh, a site that my girlfriend and I have been to called Makamuda State Park. It's the basis of his Dunwich horror. And in the colonial times, they said that at the base of this uh, cavern, was a medieval carbuncle making these crazy noises. And I go and I look up like what a carbuncle is and it's got like this crazy, you know, definition. Uh, It's some kind of like crystal, some sort of like, some people say it's like a being, you know, the Native Americans, they thought that it was like a, a god that, you know, whenever they had maybe something negative that they needed to take care of. Maybe they had a problem they needed solved and then the good God wouldn't do it for them. They'd turn to the bad God who represented all things <laughs> bad. Right. And and they would appease him somehow. And this is, you know, simplified to a large degree, but to your point about like sacrifice, like dude, it's happening everywhere. And that guy, HP Lovecraft was literally in the area where, you know, native Americans were, were doing that kind of stuff. So it's not that far removed to to connect all these things as as strange as that may seem to people who are new to it you guys don't seem new to it at all and i love that feeling of like oh my gosh this is here i'll tell you another one before i let you guys continue i just got a book called weird america by jim brandon and in the book you know lists all these towns every state has different towns it talks about you know sort of encyclopedically And I go to the Connecticut section and I see that my hometown is there. I'm like, my hometown? I'm like, there's nothing going on in my hometown. And it turns out that like three blocks away from where we just moved, there were underground tunnels that they dug up in the 80s when they were putting a sewer in. So I'm like, all right, now I'm living on top of underground tunnels you know, I haven't even gone to close to that rabbit hole yet. I just, I don't want to look into it, but I know that we're kind of venturing on the subterranean realms here with this conversation. So maybe that was a, an appropriate segue, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's a great segue. No, great holy segue. Crap. 
<laughs> well, yeah, man. I mean, you talk about these tunnels, you got to think like we're sitting probably right on top of a good portion of the Mammoth Cave system. Even you where you are are probably sitting on top of a portion of the Mammoth Cave system because they honestly don't know how far this thing goes. What is it? One percent of one percent is mapped. Well, that's all caves in all the world. All caves in the world, yeah. There's like 420-some, uh, 420 miles, something like that, of the Mammoth Cave system that have been explored and mapped. Uh, and that's just, don't quote me on that one. That's just an estimate. Um, but they they think that it's so much farther than this. I mean, and you know, you in our area especially – you take in all the mining that have been done, all the, all the old abandoned mines, and you. I mean, it's just we're literally living on top of Swiss cheese. I mean, that's that's what's underneath. So who knows? I mean, there could be an infinite amount of possibilities of you know beings and creatures, and you know who knows what kind of of ecosystems going on underneath our feet that we have no idea. Like we have no idea about. It's just amazing that, and, and you know, you talking about these tunnels where you're at. It's just, you know, you start looking. We start looking more and more and more into this stuff, and it's always high places and subterranean places. You know, it's like this liminal space. Even though we're operating in a physical world, in a physical realm, and we're touching, you know, we're we're living the lives that we're living. It's like we're constantly living in a constant liminal space. Of, of the in-between of the entities in the high places and the entities in the subterranean places. And we're stuck in that battle between. It's just, you think about it like that, man. And it's just like, gosh, we're just, we're just along for the ride. I mean, you know, we're just going with the flow. Mm. And I'm glad he mentioned HP Lovecraft because that's like, He's my favorite of one of my favorites of all time. Like that's how I got into the weird Mark. Is I, you know, ghosts and all that. You know, I need to see something for me to be into that. But talking about these archaeologists saying, "Oh, it's a trick of the mind," and all that you're seeing things. But H.P. Lovecraft once said, "The strongest emotion in mankind is fear, and the strongest." fear for mankind is the unknown so i just think these dudes don't want to admit to this crap or you know give anything to it for fear of being ostracized by their communities or whatever but i just but this stuff really when we say it gets weird martin with me saying that is because now like Crap's happening where it actually affects me, and I'm thinking, what the, what the hell was that? You know, like I had this. I woke up. I've I've had a lucid dream now, and I've had a dream the other night. I woke up screaming to where my son came in the room asking, "Is Dad screaming?" And this shit, I mean, it just plagues me, and I can't stop thinking about it. And it's all this crap Justin dove into. <laughs> He's bringing these demons in on us, but. It all kind of ties together, I think. What? Well, what, man, you. What happened? Oh, sorry, Mark. The, go ahead. No, it's all right. What? Uh, what happened in the in the dream? It, it, is that all you remember? Just the screaming and what happened after oh, you woke up? Oh no, no. I was in a I was in a like a basement, like a stone walled basement, 
And like a I, subterranean place. Yeah. And I could hear all these people talking and then that would go away and I would hear a baby crying and I was trying to find this baby because I'm like, holy shit, there's a baby down here. I got to get this baby out of here. And then I would realize, oh my God, this is a trap. And I'll take off running. And the instant I would take off running, I would end up in this room and there was this dude in there and he was massive. He's really tall. And I can't remember facial features. I kind of, I, I kind of compare him to Jim Carrey's character, The Mask. But he wasn't in a yellow suit. I want to say it was a green one, but I can't tell you for sure. But I know he was wearing a hat, like one of those zoot suit riot hats, you know. And he would never. He was doing something at a table, and he would never turn towards me. Any if I ran to the left, I would come in on his right, and if I ran to the right, I would come on in his left. And he would just turn his head and he had yellow eyes and like really dark teeth, not dirty, but like obsidian. And he had this huge Joker smile and all I was terrified. And anytime I would see him, all I could do is scream. I couldn't ask him. I wanted to ask him who he was, what was going on. And I would just scream. And I woke up the last time I ran in that room. I just, I woke up screaming. Jeez. Yeah. And I can't, I can't stop thinking about him and it's driving me nuts. And I also recently stopped taking gummies because I got to take a drug test soon and that's affecting me too. So, okay. (laughs) Well, that might explain the the, uh, sudden influx of dreams, you know, but uh, yeah. Wow. I don't blame you for feeling a little apprehensive, uh, especially when you're uh, looking into the lore and the countless stories of, of people who, have experienced strange and sometimes even life-threatening things or, you know, even worse, you know, uh, uh, things that have killed them. But when it comes to these caves and the petroglyphs, are they in proximity to anything uh, like maybe the Hopkinsville goblins or any other stories that you can track down, like maybe not directly this location, but what are some of the things that this site is in proximity to? Um, well, like we mentioned earlier, uh, we're literally right across the mountain from Hellier, Kentucky, where, you know, the new Kirks got all that, all those accounts about the goblins coming out of the caves or Justin, the mine shafts Justin, there. Justin, Justin just go yes, ahead sir. and tell them about Chief Cornstalk. Just go ahead and get into it. <laughs> well, that's, that's more involved with the treasure. That gets into the treasure part of oh. it. As far as the B, like... We're in proximity to, we're about what, 45, 50 minutes from the West Virginia border, um, 30, 40 minutes from the Kentucky border. And I say minutes. And, you know, when people talk about driving or taking a country mile, there's a reason for that. It takes a long time to drive a country mile on mm-hmm. these back roads. Mm-hmm. So they're literally just right over different mountains and, and ridges and hollers to get to these places. So, I mean, you know how much weird is in West Virginia. You know how much weird is in Kentucky, you know, eastern, central Kentucky. Um, this this rock, it's right along the border of Kentucky, West Virginia, Tennessee. So, we're, it's right there smack dab in the middle of weird central Appalachia. Um, you know, we've had all kinds of sightings and, and accounts around, you know, everything from Bigfoot to – uh, flying, you know, winged humanoid type accounts. Um, of course, you know, there's there's a bunch of little people 
accounts from around here and, and getting on down into Western North Carolina, especially. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's right in the middle of, of weird Appalachia. Mm. So there's a lot of that, but I guess since Lance is dying to segue into this treasure, he's dying. Well, didn't the hell your boys, they're the ones who we didn't put it together until now, but weren't they the ones talking about there was a corn stock carving over here somewhere? Well, it's, it wasn't them. It was a one little clip from an episode of Hellier where they were talking to a guy. I don't remember exactly where he was from, but he mentioned uh, a carving of a corn stalk in the, the neighboring town from where we live. But I guess the weirdest thing about all of this is what this rock opened up. And, and, you know, this rock was an adventure in itself, you know, and, we're going to throw some things out there that says, okay, maybe possibly these two things are connected. But I think the more that we look into it, we think this, this is two separate mysteries, just two separate adventures that we're kind of, that we're kind of on, you know? Um, and if this rock turns out to be absolutely nothing at all, it's still opened up this still massive. Awesome. Yeah. It's still Awesome. But it's opened up this massive quest that we're on now with this John Swift silver mine and the lost caches, possibly, of silver that goes along there. But Lance does a way better job of this because this all started with Lance. So take it away, buddy. Yeah, so like I said, I was... I was the third wheel to this podcast party and still am. You were um, never the third wheel. But never. I came in late and have known Justin for Lance, You're the sack that holds this scrotum together, buddy. Exactly right. <laughs> a nice tight well, thing that holds everything together. <laughs> <laughs> but I've known Justin forever and met Ryan and have become, it, it feels as if I've known Ryan forever now with the year and a half we've been doing this. But, um, but we, had this picture, had this rock. I didn't want to go. Eventually, we got up there. I saw the rock, took the picture of the rock, talked about the rock. It was all during the summer. So I teach high school at a, at a public high school here, uh, about 45 minutes from where these boys live. Um, and was just talking to one of my colleagues about the picture of this rock. We were talking, uh, got back to school and talking about summer vacation as old whites do when we get together <laughs> um and so we're just talking about different things and i just mentioned the picture of this rock um and how it we had made some minor connections to the john swift silver mine that is in another area very close to us um over on pine mountain in kentucky on the border and we had just said there had been some carvings over there that were very similar to what we had seen and i'm just talking to uh, my colleague about this and just we're just rattling off about it. So he starts to ask me some questions um, about the rock and about the John Swift silver mine and what I know about it. Um, so I just given him this kind of just an information dump of what we spent like two weeks doing. Uh, and he just keeps looking at me um, and I can kind of see like the gears turning in his head as I'm talking to him. Uh, now this gentleman um, that we were, that I worked with is a well-traveled guy. He's been all over the place. Uh, they, Pulls a camper pretty much all across America. Um, he's a history buff um, and just a natural storyteller. 
um, and just a collector of information. And just a collector of stories and a collector of information. So as I'm selling him this stuff, I can, again, I can kind of see the wheels turning. Um, so I give him all the information that I've gotten about this rock. There's the pictures. We've seen some stuff about John Swift's silver mine uh, that looks similar to it. Uh, don't know much about the Swift silver mine, but are starting to look into and explore just some of the different mythologies and some of the different stories about this Swift silver mine. So I get done and he stops and kind of looks at me um, and then proceeds for the next hour and a half to completely blow my mind. <laughs> um, and to make a really, really long story, not as long, um, essentially what happened is that his father was trying to buy some land on the Treasure Coast in Florida as a retirement place um, and had been in contact with a gentleman down there who had the land and was going to sell it to him. Um, and the gentleman that I work with was, was kind of taking over the negotiations because his father was older and it was just easier for him to kind of help negotiate. Uh, and this Mr. Anderson, who is the gentleman who has the land, who lived in Florida on the Treasure Coast, um, he described him to me as just eccentric, uh, high energy, just a mile a minute mouth moving all the time, brain going everywhere, just a really high energy guy that just talk, talk, talk really fast and kind of hard to keep up with at times just because of how fast his brain works and how, how quick his mouth went. In the process of them negotiating to get this land sold, um, it comes to find out that this Mr. Anderson actually sold the land to somebody else. Okay. And kind of went back on a deal that they had made and felt really bad about it. So as I guess as a penance um, for, for kind of coming back on the deal, gives him this information about this John Swift silver mine and tells him that he knows the location of the John Swift silver mine very close to the area which we live at uh, here in Southwest Virginia. And I'll say this a couple of times throughout this story, but he tells Mr. Sires, the guy that I work with, Mr. Anderson, who is the guy who has a story, tells him that he's seen the mine and there is b -b 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 billions of dollars in silver in this mine. That he was unable to get it out while he was here in the 80s because he wasn't from the area. It's going to be quite the undertaking legally. Um, just the excavating of it alone would have been fairly expensive. It's on national forest lands. So it's going to be a whole bunch of legal hoops that he had to jump through as well. So he never got back around, never just, just kind of didn't follow through on looking for this silver. Why would you not if you knew there was billions of dollars in silver there? That story takes no turn. This Mr. Anderson, who lives on the Treasure Coast, made his fortune because he found one of the pieces of Christopher Columbus's ship and found some of Blackbeard's treasure on the Treasure Coast. Now, there are articles about this. This is a legitimate thing that took place. Uh, this isn't just a, a pretty story like this. There's got concrete evidence that proves that he has found this. This guy's what we would call a professional treasure hunter because he's found it. Like he, He's done. He's been there and done that. And he's telling Mr. Salyers about this John Swift silver mine and in the location that it's in. Now, he gives him X marks the spot um, on some older maps, and he has marked the spot by doing dowsing. I don't know if it's a kind of an Appalachian thing. Um, I don't know if you know what that is, um, but dowsing is taking metal rods, 
and allowing either the centrifugal force of the earth or magnetics or whatever it is to kind of point those rods in the direction. Sometimes as they cross, I know over around here, some of the old folks who use them to help find whales and, and all the different type of things. There's a whole bunch of, it's, it's folky, right? It's, it's not totally scientific, you but know, it's there's funny. a lot of, My dad works for the water department. And when I was a kid, he showed me how this works. And he said that the water department in our state actually uses this as a sort of tool, you know, not, you know, they don't make public announcements about it, but yeah, it's a part of their toolkit. <laughs> right. So this, that, this dowsing is how he X marked X marked the spot on the map of this silver mine and he had seen it with his own eyes um as well um and so in the process of all this mr sires guy work with us why in the world is he telling me this and there's no possibility that this could be true right because this is too crazy of a story just some random guy that you had talked to for a couple months you know tells you this huge fantastical story of all those billions in silver why is he telling me this? And there's no way this is true. So he begins to ask Mr. Anderson, again, the gentleman with the information, some questions. And he sends him on a, another treasure hunt to kind of back up and give more evidence for the fact that this silver mine is really here. So he tells Mr. Salyers to go to a little place south of Cincinnati and that he has doused, X marks the spot, a mound that has precious metals in it that he doesn't have the land deeds because he's in Florida, it's in Cincinnati, uh, doesn't know the property owner, but if you will go into the local courthouse and find these things then go to this area and figure out who owns the land and ask him if he can dig it up, he can find like legitimate precious metal, gold, silver, whatever. So we're about three hours South of Cincinnati and Mr. Sires thinks I've got to at least go. I've, I've got to go try Like I've got to at least go check it out. Right. It's probably not true. Uh, but we've got to at least go try. So he and his brother drove up and went to the the, the little town um, and went to the courthouse. It was the old style courthouse. You know, it still had stuff on um, the microfilm and old, nothing really digitized quite yet. They're going through all of the different files and different landings. And they found the landowner um, and found the address to where this location was. And they had the maps from Mr. Anderson and drove up to the property, which is a little farmhouse and uh, drove up and, with their metal detectors and their papers and their map and went up and knocked on the door. Asked these people if they could go explore um, this area on their land. Well, nobody was there. Nobody was home. Um, so they went back and waited 15 minutes and nobody showed up. They were, Maybe they just went to town to get something, whatever. We'll wait till somebody gets here. About an hour, an hour and a half later, nobody shows up. Not seeing any signs of anybody. Mr. Sayer says, I'm not driven all this way to at least not go check. Right. So they take the metal detectors, they hop the fence, they go out to the place X marks the spot, they put the metal detector down, and they get an instant boom, a high precious metal ping on their metal detector. So obviously there's something there. People never show up. They have to leave and get back. They eventually go back and do some more digging around or whatever. They, they, they come to find out that where that is at is actually an old Indian burial ground. Um, so there is no excavation excavation that's going to take place because of the walls and different things we got around that. But he got high, uh, definitely 100% a precious metal ping on his metal detector. So he goes back and calls Mr. Anderson and tells him, all right, this is what happened. 
We found this month. We found this gold. Essentially, we couldn't get to it because of the laws of the land or whatever. Um, but this definitely happened. He then proceeds to tell him that all up and down the East Coast, Mr. Anderson is just telling uh, Mr. Sayers, all up and down the East Coast during the Civil War are these caches of silver and gold that the soldiers would throw down in the outhouses and cover them up so that the other armies couldn't find them. And there is several locations up and down the East Coast that where this is at. Okay, so now the guy that I worked with has a couple of instances that this story has checked out. Got the articles from him finding the treasure in Florida. Did an own, his own treasure hunt where he found actual precious metals. Just couldn't get to it because of of the laws. Uh, couldn't get it excavated. So there's obviously some legitimacy to what this guy said. So he calls him back. Okay, I'm in. Tell me more. Um, so Mr. Anderson proceeds to tell him some specific details about where this silver mine is at. Um, and the location of it and what to look for and some indicators and gives him maps and, and all this sort of thing. So he's telling me all this. And I'm starting to take notes and just write as fast as I can, try to consume as much of the information as I can without stopping him because I didn't want to lose his train of thought. He then proceeds to tell me that he spent about 10 years looking for this mine um, in this location. He's got his own maps. He's got pinged locations that he's been to where he's found some interesting things. He sees caverns, huge boulders that appear to be covering up these caverns, uh, but he's yet to find the actual silver mine itself, but he has a pretty good idea of where he thinks that it's at. Now, the silver mine has been looked for for hundreds of years. It is a local legend uh, here in southwest Virginia, eastern Kentucky, Tennessee, like in our local area here, it's a legend that's been around for forever, and people have looked for it for a long, long time. And they've looked for it and are continuing to look for it over on Pine Mountain, which again borders Kentucky and Virginia uh, and really close to where we live. The location of the silver mine that Mr. Anderson gave us, or gave Mr. Sayers, Mr. Anderson now passed away, but where we think this silver mine is at is not the same place that everybody else is looking for. Okay. What does that have to do with this rock, right? Um, well, there are some carvings and things that line up very similarly um, to the silver mine and locations of the silver mine, even some similar carvings over on Pine Mountain uh, that are not identical but have some similarities uh, to the rock that we found uh, in our hometown. Um, but it actually, we didn't realize this for a while, but there's, there's quite a bit of correlation, at least in the story. Maybe there are I don't like the word synchronicities, Mark. I never have. I don't know why. I, I think unusual coincidences when we try to make it sound fancy by calling it synchronicities. Yeah, I guess it's the same things, right? It's six one way, half dozen or another. But there are some unusual coincidences that have popped up because of this story, because of this rock. Okay. Um, and that essentially, Mr. Sires has been up there looking for it. He said, we got to go during the cold months because there's rattlesnakes and copperheads everywhere. It's, pretty treacherous terrain you're up and down rock faces there's a rattlesnake den looming around every corner essentially <laughs> tell stories about him kind of going around a cliff face and sticking his hand to hold it into a hole and there's a rattlesnake that's looking at him and he's had to pull his hand back so it's this is the kind of the time of the year to go look for it um we were planning on going over christmas break and we got busted with some negative like dangerously cold weather uh here for about a week so that we've had to push back our exploration date uh, but we're looking to get up there very, very soon uh, to look for this silver mine. 
um, which then correlates right back to the rock in some silver caches that might be around it. But I'll let Justin tell that story because he knows a lot more about it. He's a better teller of that story than I am. Well, with all this going on, you know, obviously we find this rock in, in at the end of July. Um, school starts back with Lance. You know, he's finding out all this information, you know, middle of August, you know, first of September. So we have months because Mr. Sayers is telling us, look, boys, you do not want to go up there this time of year. You may not make it back out. <laughs> so obviously, yeah, we're all about finding some treasure. I'm not exactly all about dying and trying to do it. Now, if I get a sniff of this silver, that might change. But as of now, I'm trying to, to, to tread a little lightly. So we have months to research. Um, like Lance said, there this has been a local legend. People have been looking at this since, you know, the late 1700s. So one great thing about all this is John Swift himself left a set of journals. Um, not all of these journals have been found, but there have been um, there have been a, a, a combination of different entries from different journals that he left with a love interest in Bean Station, Tennessee, before he passed away. Okay, and in these journals. There's a lot of different entries to where Swift talks about how because of raiders, uh, you know, local native chiefs that would try to raid and, and, you know, swap some of this silver from his party, you know, from the mine, uh, you know, different settlers that were around, you know, everybody was broke at that time. Not a lot's changed since, <laughs> but, but everybody, that, that was a quick way. Maybe broker now than they were then. <laughs> yeah, well, we're definitely broker than Swift, but everybody was trying to get a quick buck by raiding and getting some of this silver while he was transported. So in these journals, there are a lot of different entries to where he talks about uh, burying a cache of silver. Now, at this time, in, in his journals, he talked about certain mountains that had tunnels going all throughout the mountain to where they had multiple entrances and exits and to where a man could be inside a tunnel in the mountain and hear the hoofbeats of a rider on top of the mountain. So he's said to have placed a couple of caches of silver in some of these locations. But another thing that is said about the Swift Silver Mine is that there was an upper and a lower mine. Now, some people have have deciphered that as to meaning that there was a mine, you know, somewhere local here, and then some people believe around the Red River Gorge area of Kentucky. To me, it doesn't make sense to have two separate parts of a mine in the 1760s, hundreds and hundreds of miles apart. It doesn't make sense to me. It makes more sense to me that an upper and lower mine would have been a place for actually mining the silver and then a place for smelting it down into currency that could be used at that time. Uh, now, with the whole upper and lower mine aspect of it, it's said, and I think Mr. Anderson himself said, that while he was there back in the 80s looking for this silver, 
he witnessed and observed a natural staircase where he thought this was supposed to be. Now, since then, there have been uh, roads that have been built through there. So the natural staircase may not be there anymore. But if you look at this little intricate, you know, sharp angles and stuff throughout the middle of the carvings that we found on this rock, it looks like it could possibly be some form of, of staircase or ladder, you know, something of the sort. Now, with these cavernous spaces above and below this possible uh, staircase, you have a humanoid figure on the top. You have a humanoid figure on the corner of the bottom, which could represent possibly an upper and a lower mind with this natural staircase in between. Possibly. But even more interesting about Swift's journals even if this rock is totally separate, that's the connection we were trying to make with this rock and the mine. But even if this rock has absolutely zero to do with the mine, Swift makes a journal entry talking about how from the headwaters of Big Sandy Creek, now the river that runs through lo- uh, through our town wouldn't have been called the river. It wouldn't have had the name that it has today. The people of that time would have taken the name of the biggest river. So you have the big Sandy river that runs through or the headwaters are moving out of mouth card, Pikeville, Kentucky, that area. Um, so anything that went off of that, the majority of the people then would have called it a Creek, you know, any kind of tributary that ran off of the main headwaters, main river, they would have called it a Creek, you know, cause it's technically not a river. So he says, from the headwaters of Big Sandy Creek, due southwest, you know, a a certain amount or a certain distance, myself, and this is Swift talking, myself, a guy named Mundy, and another guy buried $25,000 to $30,000 worth of silver around a, quote, peculiar-looking rock next to a quote Indian grave that's a piece that we left out do like I said do this certain distance from the big sandy headwaters now I believe based on the trajectory and looking at the maps and looking at what I think that he is talking about with big sandy creek I think that he could possibly be talking about our rock he also said there in the journals that him, Mundy, and this other guy carved their initials and a compass rose and a trowel into a big old tree close to this peculiar-looking rock and this Indian grave. Now, when we went to go look at the rock, there's this huge stack of stone that looks like a, a small little mound right at the top of the ridge and actually a power line right away. It's it's in the middle of a power line right away, but it's not touched. It hasn't been destroyed. It hasn't been taken out and cleared like the rest of the land around it. And we were kind of joking at the time saying, well, this is, this is some kind of mound. You know, we know the natives have been here and done this. And we were just pretty much joking at the time. Well, when I find this entry in the journal, I'm like, holy crap. You know, if you look up what, Indian graves, what these sailors were, that's what they were. 
they were on top of these mountains, you know, just isolated. And they were just these stacks of stone to make these small little mounds on top of, you know, whatever deceased native was there. So we see that, but most interesting out of all of this, you know, that's all connections that, that we can make, but we're missing a piece, right? We're missing the tree. So I'm actually at a family friend's birthday party and I'm sitting there and I'm just talking, you know, nothing about, you know, anything weird. I'm trying to act as normal as possible, you know, (laughs) in this setting, um, but this guy starts talking and and somebody asked a question about because the cliff rock carvings episode had just dropped. So somebody there had asked a question about the carvings. So I'm talking a little bit about it. And a guy that's there, you know, I don't mention anything about the journals. Actually, I don't even know if I'd stumbled upon the journals at this point. He says, yeah, he said the well site that's up there really close to that rock. He said, I built that well site. The, that gas well site. I ran the excavator up there to build this site. He said, I went down and checked out the rock on our lunch break, you know, just totally nonchalantly. Like he was talking about the weather. It's, it's, it's really strange, man. Those, those carvings are really strange. I said, yeah, they are. Well, I talked a little bit more about it. And he said, uh, the funny thing about it is when I was there and now we're talking like early nineties when he was up there, he said, the funny thing about it, when I was there, he said, you have that rock and you have these carvings, but there was also this big old beech tree that I pushed over with the excavator that had all these funny carvings in it. It had like some people's initials and what looked like a, a compass or something. And I was in shock. Mark, I don't want to up and ask a question because you get the same reaction we had when you first told us that. That's the exact same reaction. <laughs> Jeez, no, please go on. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm just sort of soaking it all in. I mean, yeah, I can see why you guys are feeling astounded. It's it's astounding, right? And then to have that confirmation with a guy that you just happen to know is is crazy, yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) anyway, to kind of shorten this down and kind of come to the conclusion of this little side part of it, you know, we think that there's a great possibility and my theory, our theory, I think to this point, and just based on the journals and, and what Swift wrote, we think that there's probably dozens of caches of silver that at least were there at the time that Swift wrote these journals. Now, could people have come behind him, you know, guys that he worked with, natives that knew about it, you know, all these different things. Could they have come by and swapped some of this stuff? Absolutely. But we do know for sure that there have been coins found in our area. We know that there's been a silver bar found in our area. So the evidence is there that this stuff is still out there. Now, if you have twenty-five dollars to $30,000 worth of silver buried in 1768, that equals just, just that small little cash itself equals an ungodly amount of money in today's dollar amount. I mean, and that's, it's just, it's amazing to think that there could be all of these caches in the surrounding area. Maybe there, you know, all these legends and, and everybody that you talk to in central Appalachia believes that the John Swift silver mine is in their hometown. It's, it's right here. 
But I will say, and I will confidently say, that I don't think there's anybody out there that has as much information as we do about where this thing is. Now, of course, obviously, there's going to be a whole lot of red tape and legal stuff that you're going to have to look at and getting into. And we've already been, you know, hashing out game plans for all that and looking at all these different things, and all these situations on, okay, if we do find this, what's the next step? And then the step after that and the step after that, you know, the last thing we want is putting it out there right off the bat and the government comes swooping in. I mean, you got suits that are dying to get back into these mountains, any possible chance that they can get, <laughs> We're probably already hearing it dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. And hopefully they're not hearing this, but uh, we've been kind of vague and I don't want to ask for specifics. I think you guys should be vague about specific locations if you haven't already revealed it. But uh, all right, ladies and gentlemen, let's take a brief moment to talk about our newest sponsor, Flow Blend. If you're someone out there who's packing a lip, you want that nicotine rush, you want that tobacco high, well, what you don't know, maybe you do know, is that that's not a healthy way to live your life. You're going to end up possibly losing your teeth, uh, maybe even getting mouth cancer. And take it from me, I'm a guy who smokes blunts. I like a nice cigar uh, wrapped around some weed. And this this is a very interesting product because uh, you're kind of getting the benefits of weed without the nasty uh, side effects that typically come along with these pouches, these oral pouches that have become a, a popular cleaner replacement to dip. Um, you know, you don't have to spit it every two seconds and create a big mess wherever you happen to be hanging out. Uh, Flow Blend, that's right, is a pouch with no nicotine, no tobacco. It's got CBD in it, as well as uh, some really great flavors like orange tang, wintergreen, coffee, and spearmint, uh, cherry blast, and dewdrop apple. And these are all CBD blends, uh, 10 milligrams per pouch with no artificial sweeteners and simple ingredients. It's a great way to replace those nasty pouches that are ruining your gums, maybe even your oral health, your breath. You know, this is a good replacement, folks. Kick that habit pick up flow blend not only do they have these cbd pouches they also have cognitive enhancement in the form of nootropic pouches that's right there's a variety of flavors here as well cocoa bean spearmint cherry blast so consider as i am kicking that habit and replacing it with a nootropic pouch I think I'm going to try these nootropic pouches uh, during a podcast interview, and I'll let you guys know what I think. Until next time, go to flowblend.com and place your order today. Average customer rating 4.8, and it ships in less than 24 hours. You get free shipping on all orders over $49. And if you use the promo code CRAZY, C-R-A-Z-Y, all capital letters, you will get a discount. Thanks to yours truly. Now, let's get back to the show. On the point of locales, there's a lost state that I don't know if many people outside of this area would know about. Hopefully, you guys know about it. Have you ever heard of the lost state of Franklin? Yep. yep. I actually just got done researching that <laughs> into a lot more information 
that I've came across. So this was where I was hoping we would find a connection. Uh, I had thought of it as we were talking. I'm like, didn't I just learn something about this area? So for folks who don't know, the lost state of Franklin officially was around from, uh, I guess, the 1784 to 1788. Maybe it was around longer than that, but that's the official story. And, uh, and apparently one of the reasons why they'd been broken up was because of some meddling on the part of Spain. Spain sent an agent out to Franklin to get uh, involved somehow. And then North Carolina came in and drove out the Cherokee and the Chickasaw. And you mentioned that like little tidbit of like, oh, well, it could be Spanish according to this one guy. So we know Spanish were in the area. Not that I think that's necessarily uh, the most uh interesting thread but the cherokee of all the native americans they have some of the most interesting myths and they also have some of the most interesting uh legends about them one of them being that they had paved streets and brick homes like this is something that i heard recently i'm like that's incredible so to think they had brick homes and paved streets i mean it's not out of the question to suggest they might have an underground cave or something like that have the ability to reinforce a cave and you know maybe even uh go quite far like you said the, those tunnels in the mammoth cave system haven't been panned out and there's this whole lore about the underground railroad right that freed so many slaves and to bring up another kind of lost group rather rather than a state uh the the knights of the golden circle who are famous for kind of the you know trying to redeem the lost cause of the south or at least that's what the north says i don't know how you folks feel about it i don't want to i you know i don't take any sides i'm about patriotism not north versus <laughs> south so you're not gonna get any guff out of us man <laughs> well good but i i do think that they're they're somehow they could be involved, right? There was this whole network of, of agents on the ha part of the South who, you know, were trying to recover a lot of the gold that they had stashed during the various battles. And I'm sure if, you know, they were foreseeing a loss, they would probably take all the gold away as soon as they could before it was seized by the North, you know, in whatever battle. I, I'm not getting specific, but just speculating there. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of uh, locations around the South that have these sort of caches hidden. Yeah, for sure. And that's, you know, that's something that we're looking more and more and more into. Um, but, you know, throughout this process, you know, like we said earlier, it seems like the more we dig and the more information that we try to find on this, this, this silver mine, these journals, uh, you know, this, this rock, all this different stuff, not only do things keep getting weirder and weirder for us, but we start hooking up with other creators and other people that are working on certain things in the Appalachian area, a lot of the central Appalachian area. And they're going through some of the same kind of things, you know, parallel, not so much treasure. We're the only ones doing that, that, that I know of, unless, you know, people are coming up underneath us right now. Um, but just, just throwing them out there. Uh, Josh and Richie from the sword and staff podcast, uh, Ward Heine, who is actually uh, works with Tony on, he worked with him on the 
the Dogman documentary and the upcoming Skinwalker documentary. Um, he's a, a videographer. Ward's a great dude. They're working on a project called Shadow Appalachia. Now, Shadow Appalachia is going to be a docu-series. It's coming off of not really a sequel, but it's coming off of a docu-series that was created by Ward Heine called Dark Holler that's central around a family in um, southern West Virginia. Now, what they're doing with Shadow Appalachia is they're kind of looking at um, just the high strangeness in West Virginia, where they're at, in central Appalachia, and kind of expanding that, taking a look outside, you know, all the way like into Point Pleasant and what's going on there and, and everything with Chief Cornstalk and, you know, his execution and cursing the land there and, and, you know, it leading to the Mothman and the Silver Bridge collapse, you know, just kind of looking at all these, uh, like Keel would say, these window areas that high, for high strangeness, you know, specifically in West Virginia. So we start talking to these guys and a lot of the things that have been going on run crazy parallel to some of the things that we've been experiencing now. When you look all back, you know, at any treasure that you want to talk about all through history, I mean, for God's sakes, Hollywood has made a fortune on cursed treasure. You know, guardians, I mean, guarding this treasure, dragons have always, you know, any Middle Earth movie you want to talk about, there's a dragon guarding some treasure. There's there's always these curses. There's always this this stuff. And I started looking into treasure and the paranormal. You know, because there's been things that have been going on with us specifically. Um, you know, there was a couple different entities that I really started looking into and, and digging on. And then I started seeing stuff, you know, and we all know you gaze into the abyss. The abyss is going to start looking back eventually um, if they're not looking already. So I thought, well, it's the research that I'm doing is the reason that I'm having these experiences. And really quickly, uh, Lilith is one of these entities that I was looking into really hard. You know, every culture, every civilization all throughout history, I believe, have a representation of Lilith. You know, this this demonic entity that was, you know, half woman, half bird, said to have owl's feet, uh, wings, you know, that could portray owls, you know, like all this different owl and crow and raven, these carry on predator birds or birds of prey these features well while i'm researching all this stuff i see this lady in white one night step out from around my building totally freaked me out um you know i start having these mimic encounters around my house you know i hear my wife calling my name from the porch one night she's nowhere around um my youngest daughter, she starts hearing my voice calling for her throughout the house when I'm not doing it. Uh, she actually sees me one time when I wasn't there. So you have these weird little things going on, and I just automatically assumed, well, it's because I'm looking into these entities. If I'm looking and digging, they're going to push back. You know, these boys, they've we've been seeing owls. It's like getting plagued by owls since all this stuff started, you know, but like with the phenomena, I feel like 
it can show you whatever it wants to show you. I believe these trickster entities, whatever you want to call them, they can they can portray anything that that they want to have the most effect on you. That's my belief. And do you think these beings? I'm sorry to interject, but you no, got me. You got me on a roll here with that one. Uh, do you think these beings, in a way, are defending themselves from your intrusions? Not that you guys are intruders in the sense that you you kind of just actually stumbled upon it. You weren't. You're not like trying to go after these entities. Do you think that you know it's it's more like a defense, or do you think they're a part of pulling you into this mystery? Do you think it's almost like you you kind of as you look into them, they're like, oh, you you want to know about me? Here, let me show you. And and it's not always what you expect. I think it, at first we thought it was defense, but now it's more the latter. I think. Yeah, I had told these boys I I have a, a strange fascination with demonology, um, and have read I just ever since I don't know why, and it's just just a weird one of those things. I just have a fascination with it, so I read a ton of these different accounts and just consume a lot of that content. And there was a demonologist who has written. Can't the name slips me right now, but in all of his writings or books or whatever, he, the thing he always kind of mentions is, yeah, it's the more you look into these things and the more you find out about these things, the more they find out about you, right? So there's a, a definite give and take of, yeah, but you're learning about them, but they're also learning about you. And when we initially started this whole thing, I kind of thought like we just tripped and fell into a cool story. Hopefully pays off for us being, you know, filthy rich for the you know, generationally rich the rest of our lives, which would be awesome. Like, but like, what are the legitimate chances of that happening? We know small, right? It's a chance, but there's, I say, you know, hi, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think you guys are on your way to the silver mine. Don't even question it, but I, I like the way you think. <laughs> well, and I also want to say, you know, you, you have a sort of somber tone about this and I'm someone who is adamantly for, uh, knowledge, right? So we need to know if the demons are doing stuff, you know, don't be afraid when you're researching this stuff, because I think that's a part of where they can spiral you out of what your intention is, which is to find truth, right? They don't want to be known. They, they want to be in the shadows. So when you try to shine light on these beings, you know, they don't, they don't want that. They try to trip you up. Right. So exactly. Mark, that was <laughs> took the words directly out of my mouth. That was the, the diatribe I was getting to. Nice. So like all these things are uh, at first, I initially thought we fell into, and then I was like, Holy cow, this could happen. Then Matt, this probably won't happen. And then we started having all these crazy things kind of that have never happened to me before. Like I don't, I don't, I've never had experiences like Justin has or anything like that. So I began to think like, you know, maybe, maybe there's something here that doesn't want us to unveil some answers and some don't, doesn't want us asking these questions. And maybe there's a, something they're trying to hide. And maybe we've been put in this position to say, Hey, no, it fell. Screw you all. We're going to find this story out find out what the freaking truth is and then tell everybody about it. And then that's kind of the vein that I think we all three kind of fell into um, that there's, a, there's, a, there's something here that I'm 95% confident that we will find this mine. 
become generationally wealthy and then have a story of truth to tell that, yeah, we had some bumps and bruises along the way. There are some entities that try to keep us from finding this thing, but this is how we overcame all of these things. I say you find the, the, the money, the silver, whatever it is, gold, uh, metaphysical treasure, and you, you don't tell anybody at all because the mystery is what makes it powerful. And also that'll probably keep you alive longer than uh, <laughs> Very true. Very, very true. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think it's one and just kind of piggybacking on what you guys are saying there. I have this, this strong belief that at the gods that we hear about that were worshipped in all these civilizations all throughout history, th- these aren't just some figment made up, you know, they're not figment of people's imaginations. I believe they actually communicated with these entities and looked at them as gods. I believe they brought them knowledge. I believe they brought them information. I believe they were able to give them whatever they wanted in life. Now, there came a time when some of these one God religions started getting, you know, really, really strong and taking up the majority of people's beliefs in, in belief systems in the world. I believe as the one gods got higher and higher and higher in faith and belief, I believe these other gods went lower and lower and lower and lower and kind of forgotten. Okay. So, now we're at a point with podcasting and documentaries and content creation and all of these people that are performing their own research. There's probably thousands of people out there that believe exactly what I just said that are kind of shining a light back on these old gods, if that's what you want to, to call them. Now, even though it may not be in the same general concept of hey, we're calling on these old ones to worship them. You know, we're calling on them so they can come into our lives and give us what we want and do all these different things. I feel like giving these old gods the attention that's starting to come on them, I believe it may be bringing them back a little more. I believe that's why, in my opinion anyway, I believe that's why there's so many more accounts that are coming out now. So much stranger, like the weirdest encounters that you've ever heard have all come out within the last few years. It seems like, you know, it just all these crazy cryptids that have never been seen before. You know, these 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 rakes and these um, humanoid winged humanoid creatures, and you know, all of these different things. Like, again, I believe this is these entities or like if you look at them like a Cthulhu, okay, say there's a centralized entity here, but it has all these tentacles. And I'm taking this kind of a little bit from Nick Hinton's playbook, the way he explained it to us. You have this central trickster entity intelligence out there, and it's able to have all these tentacles and to poke holes into our reality and whenever those rifts wherever those rifts come into our reality wherever that hole is poked you might have a ufo sighting you might have a cryptid encounter you might have a poltergeist encounter you might have uh, an apparition scene so it's like the more attention that we're given whether it's positive or negative the more attention that is being brought on these old gods i believe they're kind of coming back 
I believe they were they're pushing their way through that what used to be a wall of a veil that's now more like a sheer curtain of a veil that they can just slide right through. Now, are these entities pushing us in a direction? I hope not. Are they they creating some kind of confusing? Hey, as long thing? as it's not off the side of a cliff, they can push us towards the treasure. That's fine. <laughs> well, you look at and sorry, I keep going off on tangents, man. No, My brain's on no. the fire. No, this you is look all at, in line with what we're hoping to get into. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look at look at Ape Canyon, right? Now, most people know the story of Ape Canyon. These dudes, these miners, they stayed in this cabin overnight. They had all these Sasquatch-like creatures that came and was throwing rocks and screaming at them and even pushed their arm through a door and a window, and they fought these creatures off all night long, right? Everybody knows that story. What most people don't know is that these miners, when they got here to this place where they were going to look for this gold mine, again, we're talking about a mine, they encounter this Vander White, this woman in white, who led them, told them the location and the direction of this gold mine, okay, and told them that there would be an arrow to show up in the sky and lead them to the mine to follow this. Like they have all these weird psychic encounters. Um, one of one of the stories is one of these guys was getting ready to scratch something down on a, a slip of paper. And, you know, in his brain, he thought, I need a, a writing utensil, and one appeared in his hand. I mean, just these different these different things. And if you look at in demonic encounters all throughout history, when somebody is has like an, a demonic attachment, in some of these cases, they can be walking down the street and think, man, I could really use 100 bucks, walk around the corner, and there's a $100 bill laying on the sidewalk. You know, now the majority of the times you have all these really positive things and it turns super dark and negative, just like these guys are looking for a gold mine. This lady in white who the way they talked about it, they adored. They adored this woman in white, this Vander White. Well, guess what? It didn't get really good for them because they had to fight off a bunch of Bigfoot all night long and almost died. Right. So it's it's like weird little parallels when well, you look at certain things like that. And that's the fun and strange and really mystical side of it is when you look at these, what everybody from the outside looking in would probably walk away just being like, oh, it's a Bigfoot story. But no, there are all these elements to these stories. And that's just one example where, you know, the woman in white and the apes together, it's like there's something else going on here. It's really, really fascinating, man. I don't think that you went off on any tangents at all in the sense that there are so many interconnections it's like you were just sort of dancing along the spider web you know but <laughs> may take a little work to go and trace that back but i'm gonna try here because you mentioned nick and nick was just on this show yesterday weird coincidence because you couldn't have, <laughs> you couldn't have known that that episode hasn't come out yet so i'm glad he came up because he's a buddy of mine and he definitely is on the right track and and one thing that I've never been able to let go of is this Native American uh, legend, prophecy even, that I've heard uh, that 
this, I think her name was Fire Eyes or something. It was a blind Native American uh, Cherokee prophet. I, Cherokee or Sioux, I might be confusing. It doesn't matter. Regardless, she prophesied that one day, you know, the people that took this land will come back to nature and follow the same ways we used to follow. Like it's inevitable. You can't escape it. And you see all these weird secret societies worshiping these people, or I'm sorry, people, gods, you know, or that's what they call them. And even the old ones, you know, HP Lovecraft was sort of in the same atmosphere as the theosophists and they were all obsessed with this kind of stuff the mormons also sort of developed from that same uh area of occult interests and spread across to the west and they have their own treasure stories and stories of gods and things like that i mean they even believe that when you pass away you'll be the god of your own planet somewhere in space and i think battlestar galactica is like based on some mormon <laughs> philosophy if you could believe that so it definitely has transformed you know from this like uh colonial sort of uh you know swashbuckling pirate and daniel boone explorer type to really far-fetched things like hp lovecraft cults and uh you know technology that's going into the ai and and i know that's a big part of the the penny royal series that whole like hyper stitching and the stitching and the computer uh, guy you know his crazy computer software that he had uh, right up there in in kentucky so yeah it's just it's it's never the case of uh you know, a linear trajectory, you know, there's always these like side tangents that appear to be tangents and then become a larger part of the the story. Cause there is just so much that's waiting in the, in the hidden, in the hidden realm. But, uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? What, what are your final thoughts? We're coming up on the, the top of the second hour here. What do we, what do we want to leave the audience with? I mean, you guys have uh, some pretty cool discoveries ahead of you, I'd say. So obviously folks should tune into your podcast to, to stay in touch and, and keep updated on that. But, uh, what do you guys foresee 2023, uh, being like well, real quick touching on those old gods. And talking about, you know, the belief and all that. But what does it take for something to have substance? And that's just a collective consciousness, right? Mm. So, yeah. I, I I actually thought of an experiment the other day. It would take some time, granted. <laughs> would take every, every religion, every religious book, every science book, and trash them, right? Just burn them all. And in a thousand years, see what comes back. <laughs> then we'll know <laughs> yeah how history repeats itself <laughs> then we'll know what's real what's not <laughs> that's pretty good final that's, that's pretty good final thoughts ryan but i feel like and I, i'm sure these boys will will bounce off the same thing i feel 2023 is going to be huge it's going to be huge for our show um the collaborations that we have coming up the tribe that we're continuing to build non-stop you know and that's that's, you know, the Hill folk out there, the community that we're building there with our listeners and audience and, you know, also the other relationships we're making in the podcasting and, and content creating community. Um, I feel like it's going to be 2023 is going to be a huge year 
you know, hopefully it'll be a year that we find some silver, but just some final little points and bulletin points before we head out of here. And this is exclusive breaking. My family thinks I'm crazy first info because I literally only stumbled upon this stuff like two days ago, or actually it was over the weekend because I called these boys at almost midnight freaking out. So excited. Right on. Let's hear it. Okay. So we talked about, we've, we've spent this entire episode talking about the importance of the natives and what they did and, and kind of the basis that they laid here before, you know, white settlers came in and all of these different things. And, um, so I started thinking to myself when I started looking into the paranormal and treasure and making these connections, I started really, really thinking, okay, if we're going to understand the swift silver mine, if we're going to understand these journals, if we're going to understand the treasure, we need to understand the man. We need to understand John Swift himself. So I started doing a bunch of digging and I found out that John Swift is related to the Jonathan Swift, English author, poet, uh, that wrote the most everyone knows Gulliver's Travels. Um, that was he's, he's related to the Jonathan Swift there. So when John Swift first came into America, he was a seafarer, uh, explorer. You know, he, he kind of had this Swift name, this English Swift name. So he already had recognition and a little bit of clout. Um, he joined, he, he settled in Alexandria, Virginia, and he joined in with General Braddock. Uh, and his army. So General Braddock and his army, they're marching and they, they get kind of uh, circled and they get beat up pretty bad by the Shawnee that are around the area. Shawnee didn't like what was going on. So they drove them out. Well, Swift being a smart, you know, man that he was, he decided, you know what, I'm just going to join up with the Shawnee. I'm going to learn from them and live with them for a while. So when he joins up with the Shawnee, the Shawnee were already mining the silver. Swift comes in, kind of says, okay, well, I have these connections. I can get manpower. I can get this. I can get that. Kind of takes over the the rights and, and the, the control of the operations of mining the silver. But while he was with the Shawnee, he marries he, he weds a shawnee he, he takes on a shawnee wife um this lady's name was elizabeth cornstalk the daughter of chief cornstalk so not only do we have a direct connection from the guy's silver mine that we're trying to find to the chief cornstalk that is literally the basis of the Mothman, Point Pleasant, Silver Bridge collapse, all of that. But they had children. Swift moved on, you know, with his life, ends up going back to England and begging the crown to do something about what's going on in the colonial U.S. or the colonial states. Um, he begs the crown. The crown didn't like it. They said, we don't want to hear that crap. They they imprisoned him. 
by the time Swift gets out, he's old, he's blind, he has a whole bunch of silver across the pond that you don't have a clue what's happened with. So when he gets back, he's wifeless, he's familyless, he's penniless. He's trying to find his old mates and, and go by these visual maps in his brain for where the silver is. Never gets back to it. But he does pick up a love interest in Bean Station, Tennessee, and leaves these journals with her, tells her this whole story, and she's kind of passed it down. But for me, the whole paranormal to treasure connection, I mean, I literally just thought it popped in my brain. I wonder what the connections are there with the paranormal and treasure and find out that the dead guy's treasure that we're looking for was married to the daughter of the most famous chief in central Appalachia who was executed and upon his execution cursed the land around it and the people that were doing what they were doing dude and the weirdest thing is this whole time my girlfriend has been finishing a painting of uh come over here tara show them the painting look at this look what she's been painting a corn stalk (laughs) how could she have had any clue we were gonna get into this and she's over here painting corn stalks look at that (laughs) lance can we use the word now Uh, can we use the word now (laughs) synchronicity well and here's another mysticism behind it (laughs) here's another unusual coincidence i typed in john swift because i'm like oh that sounds familiar and a guy that was born on that Hammonasset line that we were talking about in Kent, Connecticut, he founded the colony or the town of Palmyra, which is where Mormonism started. So uh, another John Swift who ha- probably, I mean, could have a relation in some way to that Swift. I mean, who knows how common that name is, but it, here we go having like this, you know, doppelganger thing. You have the famous author, Jonathan Swift. You have this John Swift and your John Swift. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> swiftly becoming strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gosh. for sure, dude. This is nuts. Wow. This is nuts. She's painting corn stalks, and <laughs> what kind of bird? What kind of bird is that? They're pecking the corn at the bottom of the painting. Well, it's white. I don't think she's finished painting it yet. It's just white, a white outline for now. Uh, what do you think, Tara? What's that bird going to be? I thought when when we sketched it that it might be a raven, but that's my idea, not hers. <laughs> She'll come up with something. We'll send you the picture. You got pictures to send me. I'll send you the finished product. But uh, Absolutely. Wow, this has been so much fun. I love how the synchronicities unfold live that way. Uh, unusual coincidences as well. I think, you know, there's a little truth in both of those uh, terms. And, and I think... The fun of synchronicities is when you find yourself involved, but that also can be the dangerous part, too. So, folks listening at home, uh, proceed with caution and tune in to Appalachian Intelligence. Don't call it Appalachian Intelligence. Get hip to the Appalachian Intelligence. And, uh, yeah, until next time, folks, uh, thank you so much for being here. Any final thoughts you guys want to plug anything before we go? I don't want to give you guys leave you guys without giving uh, your final statements. Uh, give everybody a chance to pipe in. Just thank you so much for having us, man. This was a lot of fun. Agreed. Agreed. Co-sign. 
cosign. Right on. Well, until next time, folks, thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Shout out to Appalachian Intelligence, Justin, Lance, and Ryan. Three really fascinating gentlemen, stand-up guys, friends of Tony Merkel, and now friends of mine. I hope they're soon to be friends of yours as well, folks, especially if you live down in that area. Get in touch with them. Maybe have a tip, a clue, or at least you could just tune into their podcast, really, no matter where you live. Uh, It's, of course, titled Appalachian Intelligence, and they don't just talk about treasure hunting. They talk about a whole bunch of topics that we've touched on on this show, and a whole lot more that is specific to their local area, an area that uh, is one of many in this weird esoteric America. I've been focusing on New Haven along with my girlfriend and our co-host on Esoteric America. For the past uh, episode, we covered New Haven. We'll be continuing to cover it over the next three episodes of Esoteric America. Uh, Mike Wan and I recently uploaded a new episode of Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. And after the trip we went on this weekend, uh, you're going to want to get on the Patreon to hear all about a trip that I took along with Recluse Steven Snyder from the Farm Podcast uh, to Rose Valley, Pennsylvania. So that's only going to be available on the Patreon. Please do go over to the Patreon. Uh, we also have a Substack and a Rock Fan. Those are the number one ways you can support the show. Uh, of course, you get an ad-free version of the show. You get no breaks in the episode like today's episode had that ad break in the middle. Uh, yeah, well, guess what? We got to pay the bills around here, folks. If you don't like it, too bad. You don't want to hear the ads? Go over to the Patreon. That's all I need to say about that it's a value for value show we function with the value for value model and i've integrated these host red ads because a i need the money and b it's not as much of a commitment as some of these other ad services for instance if i had dynamic ads in my show i would need to change my rss feed or work with some sort of service that would impose ads at random intervals throughout the episode and i just don't like listening to that at least with the host read ads you know generally how long they are and if you really must skip past it you can skip past it i don't mind you know i listen to sam's host read ads on tinfoil hat and they're kind of funny so hopefully you folks don't mind listening to the ads and if you do sign up on patreon support the show that is the best way to keep this show going it's the most direct way to keep the show going and guess what the more folks we have on patreon uh the less i'll need ads so that's that anyways thank you for tuning in please do go and support appalachian intelligence and uh check out what justin lance and ryan are doing of course they've been interviewed on tony merkel's podcast the confessionals and i think i'll be on that show very soon we were supposed to record this week but we had to reschedule uh i've also recently been a guest on project cheney and michael a hoffman's revisionist history uh so 
a lot of cool stuff. Uh, those interviews are also available for Patreon supporters. Uh, you get it all in one place. Also, some Substack articles that I recently wrote, one about the esoteric landscape here in New England, another about, well, the other one is actually not written by me. It's an archived article I found online that I thought was of interest about the conspiracy surrounding Chief Pontiac, which we did talk about when Chad Stemke was on the show, but given that I had to do a considerable amount of work to dig this article up, I figured I'd make it easier for people by bringing it onto my Substack for free, of course. Uh, all of the things that I'm going to archive from other places will be for free on the Substack, but if you want to read my writings, you can uh, subscribe, you get emails anytime I post a new post, and you also have access to exclusive articles that are for paid subscribers only. So, And once I smooth everything out with Substack, I, I think I'll be posting audio content there as well. So hopefully Substack will be the alternative to Patreon, maybe even Rockfin. Um, I don't know, Midnight Mike on OBDM said Patreon isn't doing too well. I don't know if that's just his opinion or something he read, but when he heard when he said that, I heard it and I thought, oh geez, well we better have a backup plan real soon if Patreon's not going to make it past 2023. Now that being said, don't go and cancel your Patreon on me. Uh, please don't. Actually, stay uh, subscribed to the Patreon uh, until you see me post an alternative there, uh, and at that point please do swap your subscription, wherever that is, uh, from Patreon to the new alternative. Maybe that's going to be Substack. I wouldn't recommend going there just yet until I have uh, what's on Patreon cloned on the Substack. So anyways, enough of the talking shop. Shout out to all of our newest patrons. We've got uh, one person that actually signed up just before I started recording this. Shout out to you, Niall. Uh, I'm going to be doing uh, Patreon shoutouts from here on out because they seem to help. And also, we're going to be doing monthly research circles for Patreons above the $5 tier only. So every 22nd day of the month at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be meeting to talk via Zoom, a Zoom meeting, uh, anybody who's a part of the Patreon or even the Substack or even the Rockfin, if you send me a message, um, you can join in to this Zoom meeting. And this will be a place where we can discuss the month of episodes, whatever topics came up that month with various guests that you'd like to share your thoughts on. So sign up to the Patreon. If I haven't sold you yet, uh, what more do I need to say? Give us a five-star rating to keep the show up in the rankings and help the show spread we want more people to find the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast and i can't do that without your help so if you like the show rate the show five stars leave us a review and uh that's all folks thank you for tuning in and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now
Anything out. 